retired, I think. While there's some in this that shows the frustration of life, there's also just a lot of very cool, practical principles that I think are really uh, helpful. It, it's so cool when you read these things, it's like, yes! That's, I wish I had thought of that. You know, uh, so there's just a number of things in here uh, that I think we'll uh, appreciate. Um, he's been saying in the end of chapter 8, first part of chapter 9, that uh, you know you can't tell from the circumstances of life whether God's happy with you or not. Sorry about this. It's okay. Not bothering you. We're not bothering you. Yeah, you not bother us. Alright, so um, it goes on from that in chapter 9 uh, to verses 4 through 6 if somebody wants to read those. For whoever is joined with hope living there's hope. Surely a lot a lot live dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know they will die, but the dead do not know anything, nor have they any longer a reward. For their memory is forgotten. Indeed, their love, their hate, and their zeal have already perished, and they will no longer have a share in all that is done under the sun. That's a really interesting way of looking at this. Obviously, everybody dies. That's something that's quite a universal experience. And look at what he says in verse 4. A live dog is better than a dead lion. Now, would it be better in itself to be a lion or a dog? Which would have higher status? Lion. Obviously. You know. But better to be a live dog than a dead lion. I mean, a dead anything is dead. It's, it's gone. It's not there. It's useless. So you see the advantage of living, even as a dog, rather than dying as a lion. However, what is the advantage for the living? Verse 5. What do they have? Rewards. Reward. Before that. They know they will die. They know they're dying. Well, that's kind of a doubtful advantage, isn't it? You know, the advantage they have is they know they're going to die. Uh, so when you stop and think about it, there's not a great deal of advantage even in that. And once they die, their participation in this life is completely over. You know, what do you, what are you able to be involved with in this life after your death? I think that is nothing. Nothing. You ever worried about what you might probably have not you? Yeah. But have you ever thought about what your funeral was going to be like? You know, well, that's the matter is, you won't care. You won't know anything about it. You know, I mean, your body's going to be there, but you won't have any personal involvement in that. It really doesn't make any difference. No problem. Uh, so, you know, that's one of the depressing things about life is it ends in death. Um... And, and those are things to reflect on. This is one of the things that makes life so empty. It's one of the things that makes it not matter much about a whole lot of stuff. Because you're talking. When you when you die, you're contacted and and and, and total share. And stuff here is over. Comments and questions. But didn't it say other places in Ecclesiastes that it was like better to be dead and to not be alive at all? Like yes. Why would he say that? Okay. No, not necessarily. From a center point of view, it would probably be better to be alive than to be dead. Was he talking about something else? 
I think it's just the idea that, you know, life's such a bummer. It's better to not be involved with it. It's so vain and empty and frustrating. And yet, in another sense, all of us want to live. And death is kind of the thing that ends all hope and, and just, you know, just kind of finals. There's various ways to look at this, and he's emphasizing various points, I think. Other thoughts? You know, read 7 through 10, though I'm going to mostly look at 10, but I'd like for you to see it in the context. Go then, eat your bread in happiness, and drink your wine with a cheerful heart. For God has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white all the time, and let no oil be lacking on your hair. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given to you under the sun. For this is your reward in life, in, and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. Whatever your, hands, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. There is no activity or playing or knowledge or wisdom on shield uh, where you are going. Basically the idea is, you know, get involved, be active, enjoy the moment, because you don't have many moments, and it's over once you die. You know, instead of saying, we're all going to die, let's just give up and quit, it says, we're all going to die, better take advantage of the moment, because you won't have it, you know, after it's over. And that's the context in which verse 10 is used. Maybe you've never heard verse 10 abused. I've heard it abused a whole bunch. You know, and there's nothing like a good context to kind of, uh, you know, alter your view of a passage. Verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. So what does that say? Here's how I've heard it used. Tell me if you've heard it used this way. If you haven't, I won't bother to go into it. Have any of you heard it used in the sense of, if you're going to do something, you've got to do the best you can at it? Have any of you heard this passage abused that way? Yeah. Is that what it's saying? Not a bit. You know, you ought to just do the best you can. This is about, hey, instead of copping out and just giving up because death is going to end everything, if you're going to do something, you know, I mean, go ahead and do it. Go ahead and get involved. Don't withdraw. You know, throw yourself into the moment. This is not about, you know, quality control. In fact, is it true that if you're going to do something, you ought to do the best you can? I'd say no. There's some things that aren't worth doing the best you can. Now, a lot of people would answer that, yes. Think about Martha and Mary. Martha wanted to do the best she could with the house and the food and all that. She was putting too high high standards and things that really didn't make any difference. Mary had chosen the better thing, to sit there and listen to Jesus even if she had to let the house go. Sometimes we've been conditioned. If you're going to, if you're going to be an athlete, you've got to be the best athlete you can be. Baloney. Athletics aren't worth that much effort. What if you want to just enjoy it? That's fine. If you're going to, you're going to go to school, you've got to be the best student you can be. And why? Is there any real value in that? Maybe if you want to be a nuclear physicist, you know. But there's no particular reason for that. If you're going to do anything, you can do it more enthusiastically or less, this passage would say, hey, don't just withdraw and cop out, get involved. But there's no passage I know of that says, 
you must do the, your best at everything. Don't give first-rate effort to second-rate causes. What you really need to do your best at is serving the Lord. Nothing else is equal to that. What do you think about that? Kyler, you want to argue that back? You're welcome to try. I don't mean that sarcastically. <laughs> okay. I think that's a really good point. Um, we waste so much time. I mean, look around at, well, look at yourself. Look, look at your brother. You waste so much time. We don't have, we don't have enough time on our hands to waste like that. Yes, that's exactly right. And maybe we ought to, Tom and I were talking about this this morning, you know, just being tolerant of each other who may have different standards. You know, and that's a little easier for me since my standards are fairly low. <laughs> you know, it's easy for me to be tolerant of people who have higher standards. But, you know, uh, I'm, not everybody's going to do everything the same way you do. You know, I don't ever bother to wash my cars. Of course, they're old enough to vote anyhow. So, you know, but I basically, you know, rarely would do that. And so they're dirty. Now, some people would think, you shouldn't let your car be dirty like that. Well, then don't let your car be dirty like that. But let me do what I want to with my car if I like a dirty witness. You know, okay. You know, be tolerant. Some people are not going to do the same. They're not going to put as much emphasis on certain things as what you do. As long as they put emphasis on the Lord. <laughs> The emphasis they put on other things is probably not really important. All right. 11 and 12. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen happen to them all. For man does not know his time like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man and are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. What's he saying here? Don't know what's going on, gives them more trouble. Not quite. Life isn't logical. Closer. Which Tim is better than Holly? Not exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's. In other words, the best person doesn't always win. You know, life's not a computer. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of just unexpected things. There's no rules to guarantee success. The fastest horse always wins the, the race. No, there's a series of factors. You know, he happened to step in a hole and broke his ankle. You know, or he got nudged out by somebody else because he's in a bad position. Or, you know, whatever. Um, do you see that? Do you see that sometimes the guy less deserving ends up winning? You know, that happens all the time, doesn't it? The best team always win. Nine times out of ten, team A would beat team B, but in the finals, team B beat team A. You know, it happens. Do you see that? Wake up, guys. When you need to stand up, you can. Uh, I'm going to give you my illustration of this. Some of you have heard this, but it's, it's, a, it's helpful to me. I mean, it, it made me think about it. When I was in seventh grade, 
uh, I won the school spelling bee contest. And uh, I went to the Central Indiana Spelling Bee Contest. And I, I won the Central Indiana Spelling Bee Contest, and I went to the National Spelling Bee, which was really cool. You get an all-expense-paid trip for you and one parent, and, you know, stayed in a really nice hotel and got tours. And I shook the president's wife's hand back then. You've never heard of the president's wife from back then. That was back in 71. But it was really cool. And all that. And I came in 45th out of 77 in the National Spelling Bee. Now, the truth is, in seventh grade, even in the school, there were words I didn't know. But I didn't happen to get those words. I got the words I didn't know. <laughs> and then Central Indiana, there were tons of words I didn't know, but I got words I knew. <laughs> and I don't think I was probably the best speller in Central Indiana, but possibly not the best speller in the school. But I got to the Nationals. That, that was seventh grade. You can go through eighth grade. So I'm like, whoa, I mean, you know, I want to really work. And I did work a lot over the summer and the fall and winter. You know, trying to, I went through the dictionary some and, you know, spelling words. I had a teacher who was really helping me a lot. And, you know, to where I could, you know, 45th as a 7th grader, I mean, I didn't think I'd win it, but I thought I could, you know, improve my place. They weren't going to have a school spelling bee, but then they decided they probably ought to. They had a school spelling bee. My grandma came up from Spencer in Annapolis, and my mom was there and all that. I got a word I didn't know. I couldn't see it in my mind. I'm a guy who sees words in your mind. And it's kind of funny, because I, I missed the easier part of it. I got the word acquaintance. I could spell acquaint just fine, the A-C-Q and all that kind of stuff. I could, the A-N-C-E and E-N-C had always been a hard thing for me. I missed it. I lost in the school spelling bee. The girl who beat me had been my worst enemy all through elementary <laughs> <laughs> And she was terrible. She missed a word in the county B that I'd known since I was in first grade. You know, I'm pretty confident I was the best speller in the school that year. I might have been the best speller in Central Indiana, but it made no difference. It was probably really good for me. I'd have been, you know, even more prideful than I was if I had won, so that was probably the Lord's providence when it's all said and done. But, you know, it's time and chance happen. I mean, you don't guarantee. You can't just say, well, you know, I do this, this, and this, therefore I'm going to get this. All kinds of things happen. That's part of the frustration about life. Life is somewhat random sometimes. Comments and questions about that. We can't get caught up. We can't get upset. We can't get angry when we find out life isn't fair. We can't get that because it's true. Life isn't fair. You know, it's time and chance. Yeah, well, what we're supposed to do is realize life is empty and look for, for beyond the sun for our hope. Uh, you know, we are, it's frustrating. Lots of things are frustrating, and that's supposed that's kind of by design so we won't put too much stock in this life. Yeah. If life was really fair, we wouldn't have a chance of getting rid of ourselves. Uh, that's a good point. You should be thankful yeah. for yeah, you're, That's a very good point. David. How do you harmonize, or does it mean you're harmonizing, um, this idea of time and chance um, with the idea that God controls everything? Yeah. Um, well, maybe a couple of things. I don't know that God controlling everything necessarily means that he specifically determines every detail. There may be some things that he just allows things to happen without him specifically choosing. And the other thing is that the way God operates the universe is 
by allowing some things that aren't according to formula to occur. In one sense, I think time and chance, man, I missed the word in the school spelling bee. But I really suspect that the Lord's hand was behind that, because I think it was probably really helpful to me that I didn't win. So it may be that time and chance is not really ruling out the Lord being ultimately in control of the fact that that's what happens, that things happen unpredictably or not to the person who's the most skilled, etc. Good question. Other thoughts, questions, comments? Also, one of the things we can realize is that because we're a good person doesn't mean we're going to be rewarded in this life. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's not about this life, it's about what's after. And we need to prioritize, get our priorities straight. Yes. And, and what you see is, you know, there's some general principles that are true, but they don't always apply. Proverbs, for example, we talk about like the importance of foresight, planning, hard work. You know, those things produce prosperity. But does that mean that every single person that works hard is always richer than the person who's lazy? Well, no. That doesn't mean that those principles are true. You know, in general, hard work and planning and things like that are helpful. But it's not like a formula. You know, you plug in so much hard work and planning and you get out so much success. It doesn't work like that. You know, um, and, and people who think it's going to then get super frustrated. Well, I did this, this, and this. It's supposed to happen like this. Life is, is empty. It doesn't, you know, you can't do anything like that. You may do all the right things and still, you know, it blows up in your face. It happens. Yeah, that's I really think uh, the Apostle Paul must have really loved this chapter. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if we, I'll put it this way, if Paul got upset at everything that happened to him, if he got upset every time that something quote-unquote bad would happen, if he would have been quit, we would have given up. And we have less than half the New Testament with us today if he had given up. Well, pretty much every page of the New Testament talks about how Christians are going to suffer in one way or the other. So uh, that's, uh, that's not an aberration. That's, that's the way it is. We are aliens in the world. We're in a world dominated by sin. You know, so we can expect things not to go well from that standpoint. Other comments and questions? 13 to 18. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, with a great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city, yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much faith. Good many good points in this. We're back to these case study deals. Here, you know, here's the situation. You had this small city with just a few men in it, and a great king came up, surrounded it, and made a large siege work against it. Now, that looks pretty lopsided, doesn't it? From the perspective of manpower and resources, that little city doesn't have a chance against that great king. But what ended up happening? 
wise coordinates to that. And yes, something you might not have even expected. There was a poor wise man who was actually, by his wisdom, able to deliver a city. Is there a lesson in that? You don't have to be great to be smart. Yeah, and wisdom is more important than strength. Yeah, it is. That's true. It's a general principle. Work smarter, not harder. You know, wisdom is going to be more valuable than a lot of big army and a lot of equipment. Um, however, after the poor wise man delivered the city, what happened? We forget about him. Say it again. They forget about him. Yeah, exactly. They forget about it. <laughs> because riches and social class impress people more than wisdom. Wisdom is so much value, more valuable that it tends not to get a lot of press. You know, it, it tends not to be all that respected. I think you can see that. People are a lot more impressed with power and, and, and you know, I don't know, flashiness. But the more valuable thing is wisdom. Uh, the wisdom of the poor man is despised. His words are not heeded. You know, generally speaking, if you don't have much clout, they're not going to listen to you even though you may have something to say. I would say the wisdom of young people tends to be ignored. You know, because, well, they're young. They don't know anything. The wisdom of poor people tends to be ignored. Well, they're poor. They don't know anything. Things like that. You know, wisdom of people from families that don't have a real high reputation tends to be going, well, they're from that family. You know, they don't know anything. You know, and so forth. You know, that's not very bright. You know, how poor or rich you are, how, what age you are, what nationality you are, etc. It doesn't really determine how valuable your advice might be. But we tend to judge people, not on the basis of wisdom, but on the basis of rather unimportant external factors. Um, the words of, of the wise in verse 17 heard in quietness are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. The world tends to value who? The braggart. The guy who advertises himself. And genuine merit goes unrecognized and unrewarded. You look at it. Who do you admire? You often admire and you kind of look up to and you wish you could be like the person who kind of struts around you know, it's kind of like a big person, an important person. You know, a lot of times you're more impressed by that person than the quiet, simple person who actually has a whole lot more to say. I must say, and you can see this a little bit, and this is a good lesson for us. You ever been in a group studying the Bible or talking about something? Who tends to dominate those discussions and talk the most? Okay, that's more understanding. That would be nice. Hadn't been true of the groups where I've been. <laughs> you know, it's so much more commonly the person who doesn't know anything, who thinks they do, and talks all the time. You know, I'm in this, and this has been a good uh, illustration to me. For the last number of years, there's a preacher study in Tennessee in February or March. It's just a two-day study, and there's like six uh, sermons, and then six discussion periods for an hour after each one. 
And the preachers come by invitation only, and it's a cross-section of ages and parts of the country, and so forth, about 30 or 35. The discussion periods are great, because you get to hear people's understanding and insights, you know, but almost every year, you know, there's one or two guys that tend to talk a lot, and they're often some of the ones who have the least to say. And some of the guys who you know are really wise, and when they speak, they've studied a lot, they've got a lot of insight. You're one of these other guys, would you believe me? Quite, I want to hear from these fellows. You know, they'll say, they'll have better things to say. But it, it's, it's usually true that, you know, it's almost inverted. The one who knows the least speaks the most. Sometimes when you know little, you don't realize how little you know, and you tend to, you know, display it. Uh, you know, when you know more, you realize how little you know, and you tend to be quiet. You notice how that works? Now, that's a lesson for us. I don't mean for us always to be quiet. There's a time we need to speak, for sure. Uh, but it's wise for us to, uh, you know, not be too impressed by somebody who's just outgoing, and not just try to dominate a discussion because, well, we like to hear our own voice. Comments and questions about that? I'm afraid to talk now. <laughs> oh, <right. laughs> no, not anything to say. But some of you don't talk, and you're probably the guys who are thinking things that would be helpful for uh, others to hear. So you might think about it that way. Uh, you know, and, and, and you've seen that. You, you've been in those situations. You always wish, uh, it's hard for me, sometimes you're thinking, I wonder what other people are thinking about talking. <laughs> You know, I wonder how often people are thinking, that idiot just shut up. Uh, so, you know, it's kind of uh, uh, insecure, I guess. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. You know, a sin, one sinner can ruin all the influence of so much good wisdom. You know, a single bungler can mess up a great plan. And that's true. It only takes one idiot to mess up a lot of good work. All right, come into questions on chapter 9. All right, chapter 10, verses 1 to 7. Dead flies make a, a, a perfumer's oil stink, so a little foolishness is weightier than wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart directs him toward the right, but the foolish man's heart directs him toward the left. Even when a fool walks along the road, his sense is lacking, and he demonstrates to everyone that he is a fool. If the ruler's temp, uh, temper rises against you, do not abandon your position, because composure allies great offenses. There is an evil I have seen under the sun, like an error which goes forth from the ruler. Folly is set in many exalted places, while rich men sit in the humble places. I have seen slaves riding on horses, and princes walking like slaves in the land. Kind of an interesting comparison. Dead flies make a perfumer's oil stink. You know, I guess it might. I mean, you know, it doesn't take many dead flies and perfume to make it stink. I don't know. You know, it doesn't take much to mess things up, is what he's saying. And that's so true. Have you thought about that? You know, one blunder, one sin, one stupid move can mess up a lifetime of good. You know, this is an illustration from 20 years ago. 
I didn't know the person, but I remember hearing about the story. And, and near where I was living at the time, there was a 17-year-old who was on his way to school. It was in the wintertime. He was driving. And he did not clear off the back glass of the frost on it. He backed out of the driveway. He ran over and killed a person walking along the side. Went to prison. Apparently, a really good guy, from what people were saying, in a worldly sense. Apparently, you know, not a not a rowdy, rambunctious person. Apparently, responsible, you know, good student, things like that. And even if he had no prison, can you imagine what you do for the rest of your life? One dumb thing. Not even not some rowdy, rebellious dumb thing. One mess up. And it, it, it affects your life forever. It's kind of frustrating. It's a frustrating thing about life. It doesn't take much to ruin things. You can work so hard, and one little thing messes you up. I know it's going to be my suggestion. You don't have to, but if you want to and can, why don't you stand up a second? You can tell it's Thursday. Probably the, uh, the time when you're the most universal and sleepy. <laughs> Why don't we do this? Why don't you just stay standing until you really feel like it's a good idea for you to sit down? I don't care when you sit down. But sometimes it's good to just stand for a little bit. It's so much better for me. I did get a nap yesterday while you all were doing sports. And I slept a little longer this morning. So I'm in pretty good shape. I also had a little more coffee this morning. Uh, but it's so easy for me. I can stand. I can walk around. And I can try to fire myself up. When I, when I get sleepy, you'll know it because I start gesturing even more wildly and ridiculously and I start, you know, being talking louder and, you know, trying to hype myself up. Uh, so, but you guys don't get that chance. So I feel for you a lot and I appreciate how much you guys care and, and the fact that you're in here. Um, but, so you can sit down when you want. Um, you know, he says in verse 3 that, you know, the fool, even when he walks down the road, you can tell he's a fool. Have you seen people like that? I mean, you know, just everything they do, everything they say, just walking, you can tell, this guy's an idiot. You know, fools tend to be like that. They display themselves rather quickly. And then what's really frustrating is that, that the incompetent people often gain more power and influence than the people who are good. That shouldn't be. You look at it. When you start working, you look at it. Half the time, the bosses know less and are less capable than the workers under them. You know, things like, happens all the time. You look at the politicians. Tell me that the smartest guys are always the guys in power. <laughs> they aren't. You know, I have a few cases in point, but I don't know what your politics are. So, uh, But uh, comments and questions through 10-7. Through All right, 8 to 15. These are some good principles. He who digs a pit may fall into it, and a serpent may bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarrels, no, quarries, stones may be hurt by them, and he who splits logs may be endangered by them. The axe is dull, and he does not sharpen his edge. Then he must exert more strength. Wisdom has the advantage of giving success. Through 15? Through 15, yeah. 
If the serpent bite before being charmed, there is no profit for the charmer. Words from the mouth of, of a wise man are gracious, will the lips of a fool consume them. The beginning of his talking is folly, and the end of it is wicked, wicked madness. If the fool multiplies words, no man knows what will happen, and who, man, and who can tell him what will come after him. The toil of a fool so wearies him that he does not even know how to go to a city. There's several things here that I think are really helpful. Look at 8 and 9. What happens sometimes to the guy who takes the pit? Yeah, that's a, that's a bummer. You know, what happens to the guy who breaks through the wall? The snake bites him of all things. You know, and so forth and so on. What he's saying is you don't, not, you don't have certainty in anything you do. You don't control things. I mean, you work really hard, you do it all right, and then it blows up at the end. You know, some unexpected event kind of messes up what you do. That's life. Life has a lot of things in it that, you know, even though you were diligent and disciplined and all that, it doesn't turn out right. You can look for that. It's going to happen. Life suffers accidents. But there are some things that are helpful. Um, for example, verse 10. What's the best thing to do before you go out to chop wood? Sharpen the edge. Sharpen that axe. This is probably the proverb I'm worst at. I am a guy who wants to go do the stuff. I don't want to waste my time sharpening the axe. I can be out there and have three chicories chopped out by the time the guy who sharpened the axe gets out there. But by the end of the day, what's going to happen? You have like six and he has like 18. And he didn't have to work so hard to do it. You know, that's the way. I, and so even spiritually, prepare yourself well. Don't just jump in. So I'm, I'm bad about wanting to jump in. You know, he's just saying there's a lot of value in being properly prepared. There's great applications of these things. These are tremendous problems. Um, and, and then I love verse 11. What happens if the serpent bites before you're able to charm it? You get a profit. Yeah, you lose your feet. <laughs> That's intended to be funny. Did you get the Did you get the humor of that? Uh, yes. What's funny about that? He's gotten bitten and he's worried about being paid. Yeah, exactly. Uh, there's probably something more fundamental to worry about if the servant bites before you get around to charming it. <laughs> you know, he intends this to be kind of a, a humorous anticlimax. But the fact of the matter is, wisdom is a matter of timing. You might you may know how to do something, but you don't do it at the right time. It's not going to help. You know, so there's just some, some things about the limitations of wisdom and the best ways to use wisdom. Comments and questions through 11? In, in 12, you ever heard of somebody who had to eat their words? Well, here's where the words eat you. You know, uh, the lips of a fool consume him. You know, what he says, you know, basically uh, destroys him. The beginning of his talking is folly, the end of its wicked madness, yet the fool multiplies words. You know, it's kind of what I was saying. The number of words is often in inverse proportion to a person's understanding. The less he knows, the more he talks. And uh, so that's, that's often the way it is with the fool. And uh, then I really like, and I think there's great application in verse 15. The toil of a fool so wearies him that he does not even know how to go to a city. Now, 
We live in cities. But back when people lived mostly in rural areas, would they ever go into the city? Yeah. Would that be important for them to be able to go into the city from time to time? Yeah, very important. That's kind of like one of the things you've got to do. I mean, to trade, to get some you know, essentials that you can't grow on the farm and so forth, getting into the city and stuff. What about the guy who doesn't know how to get to the city? Yeah, he's telling you all these grand, glorious pronouncements on all these difficult, abstract issues, but he can't even find the city. I say he doesn't know what he's talking about when it comes to these deep issues that he's got all these pontifications on. You know, test the person by whether or not they even know basic life skills. I remember when I was growing up, my dad owned a landscaping company, and we landscaped, did a big rock garden for this, I don't know, he's a psychologist, psychiatrist, something like that. And, you know, a guy like that's supposed to be dealing with people and their, you know, problems, you know, counseling, whatever. Well, we, he had one son who was about 12, and we could, you know, we worked there several days, and we could hear him inside screaming at this 12-year-old kid all the time. I'm thinking, you know, if the guy can't control his 12-year-old, I don't know if he'd be very helpful, you know, dealing with my problems. I mean, it's like there's some basic things. Think about it in Bible matters. You know, what about the guy who, who doesn't even know, you know, hardly where to find the books in the Bible? But he's full of all these, you know, ideas. You know, he know he understands about this. He understands about that. I doubt it. You know, he doesn't even know how to, you know, get to Hosea. You know, I'm not likely to believe him when he's got some deep, difficult, dark thing he's figured out. You know, when somebody doesn't know basic, practical things, they're probably a fool. And don't listen to them when they try to tell you all these, you know, grand things. Comments or questions on that one? To me, that's pretty practical. All right, how about 16 to 20? Well, to you, O land, when your king is a child, and your princes feast in the your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility, and your princes feast at the proper time, for strength and ah, and for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth, the rough roof skins in, sinks in, and through indulgence, no, indulgence, indolence. I said indulgence. <laughs> indolence, the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life. The money answers everything. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. Okay. Here are some uh, wisdom principles of politics. What do you not want in a kingdom? Verse 16. Child leader. Why not? Why wouldn't you want a young ruler? 
it's not responsible for it. Doesn't know very much. Why wouldn't he know very much? Just kidding. That doesn't have the experience. Yeah. Do you have to be a certain age to be president? Yeah. Thirty-five. Have you ever noticed how many thirty-five-year-olds have you known to become president? I mean, you know, how old's Obama? I forget. I see. He's like 47. 47, 48, yeah, something like that. He's, and we see him as being a quite young president. You know, typically they're in their 50s or 60s. There's a reason for that. You know, we see, you don't want some kid, you know, running the country. You know, they're not likely to have the depth and experience. You know, the reason why uh, the church selects elders to, to rule over it as opposed to youngers. Yeah, I think there probably is. Um, and, and you also, verse 17, what kind of leaders do you want? Ones that are not foolish, foolish and are not drunk. Not self-indulgent. You don't want rulers who say, ha, ha, I got the power now, I'm going to do this, I'm going to get that. No, no, you want them to actually act in the best interest of those who are ruled, not trying to be selfish with this thing. And then in 18, he encourages hard work and warns about the dangers of laziness. You know how it is. When it's raining, you can't fix the roof, and when it's dry, you don't need to, right? You know? But that's not a very smart way to do things. It's a whole lot better to be diligent. I need that one. Um... And uh, I think verse 19 may be just the idea of evil happening in the world. Maybe just kind of quoting this as kind of, uh, you know, here's what, here's what many people think. And then in uh, verse 20, in your bedchamber, don't curse a king. And in sleeping rooms, don't curse a rich man. Why not? Yeah, you never know when it's going to get back to him. You ever send something to somebody and say, no, no, don't tell anybody? Well, have you ever told anybody something when people told you not to tell anybody? You, you know, somebody tells you, no, don't tell anybody. So you go to somebody and say, no, you don't tell anybody. They go to somebody and they say, no, you don't tell anybody. And so forth and so on. It doesn't take long before everybody knows. And everybody's just, you know, they're just telling one person, told them not to tell anybody. There's one surefire way. Um, people not knowing something. And that's, you don't tell them. Not one time. I mean, if you want to be absolutely sure something's not going to be heard, then don't tell. Now, I understand that there's also some wisdom in who you say what to. There are some people, here's the thing, what do you think about somebody who's always telling you what everybody else has told them in confidence? Does anything strike you about those kind of guys? So what if you tell them a secret? They won't keep it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that other kind of, ah, you know, you're probably not the most trustworthy person to tell confidential information to. Even maybe my own secrets. If I don't want everybody in the world to know, I probably don't want it to tell it to the person who told me everybody else's secrets, you know? I mean, some common sense principles in this, I think, that are really uh, wise and have all kinds of applications. All right, comments and questions in chapter 10. That was wisdom in politics. Here is wisdom in, I say, economics. Uh, chapter 11, verses 1 to 6.
Cast your bread upon the fill waters, for you'll find it after many days. Give us room to seven and also to eight, for you do not know what they will be on the earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, to the place where the tree falls, there shall lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know what is the way of the wind, or how the bones grow in the womb of her who is with child, so you do not know the works of God, who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and in the evening do not withhold your hand, for you will you do not know which will prosper. Now, I think what he's saying is, you do not know the future. You don't know what's going to happen. Don't let that cripple your involvement. Rather, let that be a motivation for you to get involved and act decisively. Cast your bread on the waters. Divide your portion to seven. Right? You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what's going to happen, so invest. So apply yourself. So don't wait for ideal conditions before you act. The guy who watches the clouds, he'll never plant. It might not be the right time. It might not work. It may rain. It may not rain. You know, this may happen. That may happen. Some people just paralyze themselves, you know, and paralyze their initiative because they've got to have a guarantee of success before they act. Maybe this won't work out right. Better not do it. I don't know if that'll happen. He's saying, don't do that. Go ahead and invest. Go ahead and cast your bread on the waters. Divide to seven or eight. Sow your seed. Look, what's going to happen is going to happen. If the tree's going to fall, it's going to fall. Wherever it falls is where it's going to be. You know, you're not going to stop it. So get involved. So act. It may not work out right, but don't let that stop you from acting. Don't require a guarantee of success before you start something. Things may go wrong. They may. Never know. But they're sure not going to go right if you don't do anything. When should you sow your seed? Always. Yeah. Morning, evening, whenever. Sow it. Well, I don't know if the morning sowing will do well. I don't know either. Sow then. <laughs> you know, I don't know the evening sowing matter. Well, then sow it. You don't know. Don't say, I don't know, therefore I won't act. Say, I don't know, therefore I'm going to act now. That, that, I, you know, when I was a kid growing up, my dad with the landscaping company, oh, good grief. There'd be days when I'd say, Dad, we, we travel sometimes 30 minutes, 45 minutes to get to the job. You know, it's like, Dad, look at the clock. It's going to rain. There's no reason for us to even try. We're going to get there. It's going to rain. You know, when we get somewhere, you know, we'd be doing a three-hour job. Dad, there's no reason to start this job. We'll never be able to finish. It's going to rain. My dad never thought it was going to rain. Until we were absolutely soaked, he was convinced it wouldn't rain. But you know what? There were several times when we got the job done and it didn't rain when I was sure it was going to. There were some times we went. We had to turn around and go home. That happened. But we got a lot more work in because Dad just never thought it would <laughs> You know, I mean, go ahead and try. Go ahead and invest. Don't paralyze yourself. What about this application? Think about this spiritually. They wouldn't listen. They wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't respond favorably. No use trying to teach them. I don't know, I don't know how they take it. Well, yeah, you don't know how 
They might not listen. Well, they might not. And then again, they might. I don't know whether they will or not. Try. Don't say, don't make, don't make it to where you have to be sure they're going to respond positively before you sow. My dad, some of you heard me tell this, but my dad always just used this illustration. I think this was on old time radio or something. You know, he was born back in the 20s, so, you know, I heard a lot of stories way back. That was way back even for me. Um, about the guy whose car breaks down on a country road in the middle of nowhere. He, he got a flat tire. And uh, he had a spare, but he didn't have a jack. It's pretty hard to change a tire without a jack, you know. Well, anyhow, so he thinks, well, what am I going to do? Nobody lives around here. You know, anyway, he starts walking down the road. Sees a light way off in the distance. Yeah, can't, that's not a house. There's no house around here. He gets closer and realizes, yeah, that's a house, right? And nobody's going to be home. You know, it's no use even go down. He gets a little closer and you see somebody inside the house. Well, you know, they wouldn't have a jack. You know, if they did have a jack, they wouldn't look to me. By the time he gets up there, he knocks on the door, somebody opens the door, he says, just keep your old jack, and turns around and walks off. <laughs> Are we a lot like that? They wouldn't listen. They wouldn't be interested in the gospel. You know, they wouldn't want to hear it. They wouldn't say yes. And by the time we get up to it, it was like, you don't want to hear the gospel, do you? <laughs> you know, you wouldn't want to read the Bible, would you? <laughs> you know, or almost like, well, you just go to hell anyhow. You know, we've psyched ourselves out, we've convinced ourselves the person wouldn't want it. We haven't given them a chance to say no. How do we know what they're going to say? Oh, well, I know their life's bad. Perfect opportunity. Who needs the gospel? The righteous? See, I came to call the sinners. Two people go, from many years ago also, two people go to Africa to sell shoes. One person wires back Horrible prospects, terrible market, nobody here wears shoes. Other guy wires back, wonderful market, tremendous prospects, everybody here needs shoes. All depends on how you look at it. Who needs the gospel? Everyone. Everyone? <laughs> you got wonderful prospects. Got to know anybody? <laughs> anybody live near you? You got great prospects to teach the gospel to. If you got lost people anywhere around, then so to see. That's the spiritual application. I think he means this more broadly. But that's a good spiritual application of the principle. Comments and questions on this? I think it's a good thing to never be too quick to assume that the person is not going to respond to what we teach them. Do they ever dismiss that? Amen. Exactly. How do we know until we try? I sure wouldn't have thought Saul of Tarsus would have ever opened the gospel. He'd have been the last guy on my prospect list, wouldn't he? You? Who knows? Why does he? Also, um, you know, when I you know, if I'm going to try to talk to somebody, you know, I usually back down people, you know, kind of look mean, you know, I want the big beard or tattoos. And I kind of learned something, you know, over the years, usually those are the most nice people. And yeah. they're the ones who respond the best, you best. Know? clean shaven guys you gotta worry about. Yeah, well, you know, when I'm knocking on doors, when I've been knocking on doors, you know, I would much rather, the guy who comes to the door that looks around is the guy who will invite me in and say, oh, come on in. The guy who's all dressed up will crack the door open and slam it back. Now, 
we need to teach the guys who are well-dressed, too. But personally, I get treated a whole lot better by the scrounging looking folks. Other thoughts? We uh, pass out flyers for gospel meetings. And my dad, there's all these people tattooed, smoking, drinking on the porch. My dad's like, you guys, you guys go on to the next house. I'll take this one. She didn't know what they were doing or anything since I was like 10. Matthew's like my age. And so my dad walks up there, hands him a flyer, and they're like, thank you. And you're just thanking them. It didn't come, but they're, they're still like all grateful of them. And other people are just like, and some pe- and some other people who were uh, like that were just like, you're doing a really good thing there, but they, and like some other people were like, thanks, but I don't think it's going to come. We tend to prejudge. God didn't call us to be soil inspectors. He called, called us to plant a seed. Other thoughts? Well, what he says in this next section is back to the same old idea, enjoy the moment. You know, the young person ought to take advantage of his youth. You're going to get old one of these days, and you won't be able to enjoy the opportunities of being young. So when you're young, do what you can. But remember the Lord. Remember he's going to judge you. He doesn't mean do what you can to live immorally and to do something that's wrong, but enjoy good things while you have that opportunity. And then, I'm going to drop down to chapter 12. Would somebody read 1 through 8? Remember remember also your Creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come, the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. For the sun and the light, the moon and the stars are darkened, the clouds return after the rain. In the days that the watchmen of the house tremble and the mighty men stoop and the grinding and the grinding ones stand idle because they are few and those who look through windows grow dim and the doors on the streets are shut and the sound of the grinding mill is low and one will arise at the sound of the bird and all the daughters of, of song will sing softly furthermore men are afraid of a high, of a high place and of tears on the road and the, the almond tree blossoms, and the grasshopper, grasshopper drags himself along, and the caperberry is ineffective. For man goes to his eternal home, while mourners go about in the street. Remember him before the silver cord is broken, and the golden um, bowl is crushed, and the pitcher by the well is shattered, and the wheel at the cistern is crushed. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit will return it to God who gave it. Hey, take advantage of being young to serve the Lord. That's the most important thing that you can do. Don't wait till you get old and decrepit and can't do much before you serve God. And then he describes old age poetically, kind of sadly. you got two options. You die young and get old. What's it like to get old? Unfortunately, I'm beginning to find out a few more of these. Look at this. I'm not as old as I look, but... And verse 3. See if you can figure these out. He's describing old age as kind of a house. You know, in the day, in that day, the watchman of the house trembled. What's that talking about? What part of your body? Watchmen of the house trip, guys. I don't think so. Uh, old people tend to shake. What part of them, especially? Uh, their hands. Their hands and arms. Yeah, I think so. And uh, the mighty, mighty men stoop. 
What part of the body is that? It's your back. Your back. What? Yeah. The grinding ones stand idle because they are new. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> your teeth. No. I don't know. We just quote the phrase: "Her teeth are like the stars above, for they come out at night." <laughs> mill is low. What's that? Your ears. I've noticed that one. The one will arise with the sound of the bird. I don't even arise with the sound of the bird. You know what it means? It means like people, like old people, hear it. No. Like they wake up. They wake up really early. Um, yeah. And all the daughters of song will sing softly. What's that talking about? Yeah, the voice starts to diminish. Yeah. Furthermore, men are furthermore men are afraid of, of a high place and of terrors on the road. Old people drive slowly. Yeah. Yeah. What's he saying about old people then? They're old. They're old. They're very very cautious. Because they're afraid of death and I don't know. Well, yeah. You know, you're afraid of you know being. You know, mugged when you're older, are you going to outrun them? Are you going to be able to beat them up? You know, you're afraid of a high place. What happens if you fall when you get old? Hey, right? Whatever. Um, at the almond tree blossoms, was that a reference to? My hair? It's just my dog, yes. Um, the grasshopper drags himself along, what does that refer to? Yeah, but kind of shuffling gauge. Everyone, old people, you know, kind of shuffle along. You know, the caper berry is in effect is probably talking about sexual desire. And man goes to his inner home. I'm more to go by the street. It's kind of sad. You didn't get old and everything starts breaking down and wearing out and not working very good. It's kind of depressing. It's the only option you have unless you die young. So, you know, and then you die. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. All the time. I tell you, if this line is what you're thinking about, it's really depressing. You know, if your life is meaningful because you're young, strong, healthy, and have a lot of fun, your life's not worth it. Because all that's vanished. You know, I don't let it seem like you're even going to get close to the end. Guys, yesterday I was your age. You know, you all think, I know, everybody says this, you all think, oh, time's going so fast now. You have a clue. Wow. Everybody always told me that. I never believed it. It's true. And I mean, at the rate of time has passed, to the acceleration of time, honestly, if I live this long, I'll be 80 tomorrow. It's crazy. It's so disoriented. It's like, you never, you can't believe that you want it. It's ridiculous. Those are old people. And I was your age yesterday. You're going to be here long before you know. It's just like, it's just overnight. And it's empty. Unless you're prepared for something better than that. Comments or questions? All right, 9 to 14. In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, and he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. 
The words of wise men are like goats, and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. By beyond this, but beyond this, my son be warned, though writing of many books is endless and excessive devotion to books is weary to the body. Alright. The conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Okay. A recommendation of the book. The author, the preacher, had good credentials for what he did. He, uh, uh, you know, searched out many proverbs. He wrote them well. So he researched diligently and he, he uh, gave attention to form as well as content. Um, and these words are like goads and nails. A goad is like something that spurs you on. You know, painful. The pain spurs you on. The words of the wise men make you make hurt. They, they prick you. Uh, but they actually push you to do better. Resist the temptation of taking a pain pill. Let these words hurt you and motivate you to do better. They're like well-driven nails. They're firm things that, that you can hang on to. They're solid. They're solid basis for your life. And they're given by one shepherd. Guess who that is? Yeah. The Lord. So, wow, these are great words. It's kind of the, the narrator's framework now recommending what the preacher has been saying throughout this book. And a warning in verse 12 against other literature. There's plenty of other guys that write about life. They give all their philosophies and teachings. Watch out. They don't know what they're talking about. You know, plenty of people who have all sorts of things to say, but don't say anything. And then his conclusion. You know, what what's valuable, what's profitable, what's going to be meaningful, what's going to fill us up in life. Things about the Son, for God keeps commandments. That's all that really matters. Everything else is empty. Get involved, enjoy the moment. But it's not for you. It's not gonna it's not gonna make you feel productive. It's not gonna it's not gonna do anything for you in the long run. It's gonna be pleasant in the moment. That's it. Don't invest too heavily under the sun. All that stuff is over soon. And it's not very good while it lasts. What really matters is serving God. That will fill you up. That will give you something, some carry-on. So, I mean, that's such a, such a wise conclusion. And, and, and if you don't do that, if serving God's not your life, I don't mean you don't go to church. I mean serving God's not your life. You don't wake up one day and you have nothing. Life is a bowl of celery. Yes. You understood something. <laughs> all right, I really appreciate you guys being in here. Some of you have been in here all week. That's encouraging. I appreciate it.